We are taking our time and walking through the book of Matthew together. And uh, so this is kind of just an expository season where we're just walking through each chapter of this amazing book and uh, considering it, talking about it, and uh, letting God speak to us directly. And uh, so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 4. And uh, uh, last week we talked about the first half of chapter 4. This is sort of the remaining half of chapter 4. And uh, where we left off last week, Jesus was uh, fasting, led into the wilderness to be tempted. And, uh, and so that is kind of where we left off. And this is where it picks up. I'm going to read a few verses and we're going to talk about it today. Matthew four twelve through 17. Now, when Jesus heard that John, that's John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, leaving Nazareth. And he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And it was, this was to fulfill that which was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali was by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people were uh, sitting in darkness. They saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death upon them, a light dawned from that time. Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, when Jesus left his time, his 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted, he discovered that John the Baptist had been arrested and taken into custody. And, uh, and so what happened there was John the Baptist, as we found out uh, a couple weeks ago, talking about his uh, baptizing of Jesus and his confrontation of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he doesn't mince words, he doesn't hold back. He's not reserved. And so he spoke out about uh, Herod uh, Antipas, who uh, stole his own brother's wife, Herod Philip. Uh, he stole his wife. His wife's name was uh, Herodias. And he stole her from his brother. And John the Baptist said, ho, 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 this is, uh, this is not a good thing. This is not a positive. So he spoke out about it, uh, addressed it and stated that it was wrong, and so uh, as a result, he is arrested, and just spoiler alert, it doesn't go well for him in the future, and so, but uh, that has just taken place. Meanwhile, Jesus settles, sets up his home base, and uh, his home base of operation is in a place called Capernaum, which is a, a diverse community that was viewed as being lower or lesser than the, the, uh, the people in Jerusalem. So these would be sort of the backwoods folks that are disregarded and not respected. And so uh, as opposed to the thriving uh, city folk of Jerusalem. And, uh, but it, it is in this area, Capernaum, which is, uh, uh, which is the northern part of Israel, and uh, it's in this area where Jesus recruits and finds uh, actually five of his 12 disciples. And uh, later on in this very chapter, he recruits a couple of sets of fishermen. You got uh, Peter and Andrew brothers. You got James and John brothers. They're all fishing. He recruits them. And then later on in chapter 9, I believe, he, he meets Matthew, who is the documentarian of this very letter. 
and so and recruits him. And so Capernaum becomes his home base of operations, and so he's set up there. And then the last part of this chapter is Jesus traveling, and uh, he's recruiting uh, some of these disciples, and he's also ministering, he's preaching in the temple, he is uh, healing people in need, he is doing some miraculous things. Uh, there's a lot of buzz around his ministry, so it starts gathering steam in a crowd. So crowds of people start, uh, uh, start gathering around Jesus, traveling with him, uh, just showing up wherever they hear he's going to be. And, uh, and so this is Jesus in this moment is beginning his ministry. In this chapter, you see it happening. And he is basically taking, uh, taking off where, uh, taking over where John the Baptist left off. And so John the Baptist is arrested. Jesus is like, it's my time. And so he steps in. And then the Bible says he begins to preach and teach the same exact thing that John was preaching and teaching, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so that's kind of the summary of the rest of this chapter. Now, the, 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 the next chapter, chapter 5, I'm going to read two verses there uh, as we uh, dig into it. And that's all we're going to talk about today is these two verses in chapter 5. But I, I just want to let you know, this is kicking off the, uh, the most famous and important sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of my favorite things to talk about, preach about. Uh, I refer to it often, and it's going to be a blast. So the ne- next couple of weeks, I cannot wait. And so this will be uh, a bit of a setup and, and, and introduction to that sermon. And so starting in chapter 5, this is verses 1 and 2. Jesus saw the crowds of people, and he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach. Now, uh, Matthew's documentation of these events is uh, written specifically towards a certain group of people. And we talked about this, I think, the first week of the series. Matthew is, <coughs> is writing this, this letter uh, towards to specifically the Israelites, the Jewish people. And so he is really uh, specifically uh, reaching out to that community to let them know that their, their long-awaited Savior has arrived. And what he does a lot, and you see it in this, the few verses we read already, that he refers back a lot to uh, ancient prophecies. And so he speaks a lot of, of Isaiah, and he speaks a lot of the, the foretelling of the coming Savior to connect those dots and say, he, he's, we've been talking about this for generations. He's here. This is him. But he also does something very important as well. He starts drawing comparisons to Moses. And uh, I want to give kind of just a real brief synopsis of the story of God's deliverance of the Israelites uh, through Moses and and ultimately the delivery of the law towards Moses. But but just a real quick synopsis. We'll we'll kind of uh, go through this quickly. But in the book of Exodus, you'll find this amazing story that we're all familiar with, that we saw, you know, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston, let my people go, you dirty apes. Um, Wait, I'm mixing two movies. Anyway, they're people. Uh, So anyway, in the book of Exodus, you read about Israelites who are enslaved 
and under Egyptian rule. And so the Israelites are in Egypt specifically. And uh, the Israelites keep being fruitful and multiplying per God's command. In other words, they're having lots and lots and lots of babies. And, uh, and so the Pharaoh discovers this, gets wind of it, and feels immediately uh, insecure and threatened because the Israelites are beginning to outnumber his people. And so he, he can't control them if they outnumber him. So he uh, has an order to start slaughtering children. And so we know that story. Moses is uh, a baby, is miraculously spared, and, uh, and, and uh, does, is not, obviously is not killed. And so uh, God then, through Moses, calls the Israelites out of Egypt and uh, towards the promised land. Now, there's lots of things that happen in between that, that time, obviously, but uh, calls them out of Egypt. They pass through the rivers of the Red Sea, or the waters of the Red Sea, which we all know that depiction. Uh, God parts the Red Sea through Moses, and they are able to pass. And then they are, uh, from there, organized, God's people are organized into 12 tribes. And so these 12 tribes end up ultimately becoming uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, but this happens after they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then ultimately Moses ascended a mountain in order to receive God's law. So that's a quick uh, synopsis of what happens in the life of Moses and the Israelites. And uh, this is how Matthew begins his letter. And so, again, we're just in in the first part of chapter 5. Matthew begins uh, with a story. Again, we'll, we'll get to this story uh, around Christmas. We skipped over a little bit of the, uh, the, uh, the arrival of Jesus, and we're saving that towards the end of the year. But uh, we find God's son in Egypt. So God's son is in Egypt. Herod, who is the ruler uh, at that time, hears of the, the potential arrival of a, of a true king. And it is immediately threatened by that truth. He tries to use the wise men to find out their uh, location so that he can have this child killed. Uh, they do not give him up. They, they, don't, they don't tell him. And so he end up, ends up ordering, uh, the, again, the slaughter of babies, trying to eradicate the potential of an uprising of a true king and a true leader. God calls this family out of Egypt. Uh, Jesus, we just read it last week or uh, two weeks ago, Jesus passes through the waters of baptism. He is in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And then Jesus, uh, it's not 12 tribes, but Jesus starts gathering 12 disciples. And then here He is ascending a mountain not to receive the law, but to give his authoritative interpretation of God's law. So you see the parallels. So we find God's children in in Egypt. We find God's son in Egypt. They're called out of Egypt. They pass through the the waters of the Red Sea or the waters of baptism. They they are broken up into 12 tribes. Jesus recruits 12 disciples. 
they, they wander in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. And so ultimately, they are, uh, he is ascending a mountain, Moses, to deliver God's law, Jesus to deliver his interpretation of God's law. So Matthew is very careful to, to make these correlations, these parallels, so that the Israelites know this is him. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been hoping for, praying for. Here we are. It's go time. And so Jesus ascends the mountain and, uh, and, and this is what John chapter 1, verse 17 says. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So Jesus came to deliver something other than the law. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized in the person of Jesus Christ. But in this moment, uh, as Jesus ascends to start this um, this beautiful sermon is he is uh, reestablishing, reaffirming the amazing power and significance and impossible nature of the law of God. So he's giving his authoritative interpretation of the law itself. In, 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 in verse 17, we'll read this probably in the next couple of weeks of Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So he's not doing away with it. He came to fulfill it. So back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. We read this just a few minutes ago. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There, there, there's a common lie that uh, I believe that Jesus is going to really target in the three chapters that takes place during the Sermon on the Mount, 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. He's targeting a a very common misconception or a common lie that uh, there's no repentance needed. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are so many at this time that did not believe they needed to repent. They thought they were doing fantastic. In fact, the mixed audience, the diverse audience of the Sermon on the Mount is staggering. It's amazing. We find at the end of it, there was lepers sneaking into it, into this, into this church meeting. And so it was people who were rulers and leaders and moral authority, and there's people who were just common folk, men, women, everybody, all these different people gathering around Jesus just out of curiosity, out of anger, out of frustration, out of desperation, out of hunger, whatever it was. But Jesus is saying it's, it's, it's important that all repent. And there are so many that believed that as far as they are concerned, they didn't need to. So this sermon is a, a confrontation and a dissection of that theory, of that understanding, of that belief. I'm good. I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I I got this. Jesus takes that theory, dissects it, and decimates it before their very eyes. This this sermon is so famous and so quoted. And so many things that we think of in terms of um, scriptures and quotes from Jesus that are just memorable, that we tag on, you know, bumper stickers and we see hanging up in bathrooms and whatever... 
Uh, so many of these memorable, important quotes come from the Sermon on the Mount. Some of these very important conversations that we need to have are in the Sermon on the Mount. And people take the Sermon on the Mount and they utilize it as sort of uh, a cheat code for a successful Christian life. Helpful hints in how to live this life well and successful. How to be a better Christian. We, we tend to read the Sermon on the Mount as if it's prescriptive. And it's not. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Jesus is establishing the absolute impossible nature of the law of God. He's not telling you how to achieve it more effectively. He's, he's taken a bar that was lowered so far down that we dug a ditch to put the bar in so that we could clear it. And he is raising that bar back to its impossible height. He is, he's taking something that had been so watered down and he's purifying it and bringing it back to its potency and saying, guys, this is not a goal that we reach. The Sermon on the Mount is a wall that we crash into. It's not a goal. It's not basic instructions for before leaving earth. It's not here's ten ways to a better you. Next week we're going to talk about the Beatitudes. And I I, I promise you, I read these online one time. I was searching around and I found the Beatitudes. Which are the Beatitudes for dads to be better dads. I'm like, what are we doing? This is silly. Because we, like the Israelites, wandering in the desert, were like, I, whatever, just give me the instructions, give me the rule book, give me the chores, and just get out of my way and let me be autonomous and do my thing. And Jesus is reminding us that that is absolutely impossible. He purposely recruits individuals along the way who could not possibly be mistaken for successful religious people. He sets up camp in Capernaum as opposed to Jerusalem because it's unorthodox. It's weird. He starts recruiting fishermen and tax collectors because it makes no sense. In fact, everything that he does proves and shows us the upside-down, countercultural, backwards nature of the kingdom of God. He's saying, hey, guys, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here, and it's not going to be the way you thought it should be. The kingdom of heaven does not play by the, the kingdom of the world's rules. It doesn't make sense. Because... This has not changed. What was stated then is still stated now. This is the beauty of the text, of the gospel, of the word of God. Is it never goes out of fashion. It's never irrelevant. It, 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 it never lo- it, it's never something we don't need. It's always for right now. And in this time, these people felt self-sufficient, individualistic, and they felt like they had their stuff together. And if they just focused more on being a better version of themselves, they would become greater in the eyes of God. That has not changed. 
We are in the self-help world. We're in this, this, this world where we feel like, hey, if I'm just disciplined and I have a good uh, diet plan and exercise plan and, and I read a couple books and, and, I, and I, I watch a few uh, YouTube videos on bettering myself, then, then I'll become this super version. I deserve a podcast. <laughs> I deserve to be, uh, to be uh, mimicked and copied because I am such a, a, an established uh, great role model for people to get their stuff together. It's like, in a sense, that's fine. Because there's rules to this world, and the way that this world works. And you play by the rules, you can be successful in this world. But in the eyes of God, it doesn't really count for anything. And Jesus is saying, hey guys, this is what matters. This, this is ultimately, permanently, eternally, what counts. Not do-it-yourself religion. It is reaching out in desperation to a God that you need and that you can't do life without. It's reaching the end of yourself. The whole purpose of the law, God gave the law not so that we could become self-sufficient, but to push us off the edge and, and help us to realize we can't do this. We don't have the goods. This whole sermon is a glorious impossibility Jesus preaches beautifully the impossible nature of the perfect standard of a perfect God. He puts the bar back where it belongs. I'm excited to delve into this um, this sermon starting next week, but um, what I'd like to focus in on today is one phrase, And, and it's easy to skip over this, but just one little Phrase. It's almost like stage directions. Jesus sat down. So he gets up to preach the sermon. He climbs this mountain, and then he sits down. It's like, well, of course, he just climbed a mountain. The guy's tired. I mean, give him a break. But there's something way more important and way more significant, way more spiritual to this, to this move. Jesus sat down and he opened his mouth, began to, to teach and to preach. I want to turn your attention to Hebrews chapter 10. And um, we're going to read verses 9 through 14 here. And this is a, a beautiful parallel. We actually mentioned this, these verses a week or two ago, uh, I think last week. And um, this is a statement of what Jesus came for what he came to do, in, in, a, in a word. This is, this is a, a beautiful statement of why Jesus came in the first place. It says this, starting verse 9. He said, Behold, I've come to do your will. That's the will of God. I've come to do the will of the Father. Which is what? He, he takes away the first in order to establish the second. In other words, he came to fulfill the law not to abolish it, not to do away with it, but to fulfill it, and then to establish a, a, new, a new covenant, a new way that we relate to God, a new, uh, a, a new approach to living in, in relationship with God. By this will, the will of God, we have been sanctified, past tense, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily 
ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected, past tense, for all time those who are sanctified. This is loaded. There's a lot here. But it gives us this beautiful contrast, this important contrast of the, the old covenant priests and their, their role, their job, what they're supposed to be doing. And so you've got these priests who are standing daily, never sitting down. And the reason for that is because their work was never, ever finished. It was frenetic. It was constant. It was continual. It was never-ending. There was no breaks. There was no lunch breaks. There was no, there's, this, is, this is a constant need. The reason being because there's nothing they could do There's nothing they could help you do to eliminate sin. You couldn't try harder, do better. There was no way around it. Sin was sin, and it was constant. It's constant, continual, and there's nothing they could do to to erase it. All they could do is make sacrifices to basically... Uh, settle the score or appease the punishment to cover it. And so the priests of the Old Testament, the old priests of the Old Covenant, they could not ever sit down down because their, their job was never finished. And then a new priest comes. A high priest whose name is above all other names. Who who is God's own son. He becomes simultaneously our high priest and a once and for all sacrifice. He's both. He's the high priest, and what a high priest would be is a mediator between us and God. In the Old Testament, we, would, we couldn't approach God directly. We had to work through the channel of a priest. The Bible says that there's no way to the Father but through the Son. He is is the high priest. He is this new channel that gives us direct access. He brings us face to face with God himself. He rent the veil, separated all the separations that were between us and who God is, including our own sin, has been removed from us. He's our high priest, but he's also the once and for all sacrifice. Meaning that sacrifices prior were continual and constant. You have to make them over and over and over because it's never enough. It's only enough for that specific moment and that specific sin. And here's Jesus, who is so much greater than our sin. His sacrifice covered everything past, present, and future. So now the Bible says there's no more need for sacrifices. Jesus himself said, I don't desire sacrifice. We ended the need for that at the cross. 
and so many Christians still live in this kind of person mentality where it's like, well, I did something wrong. I'm going to have to beg for forgiveness so that I am now forgiven for that one. And we live in this, this kind of mentality where we're always just like, what have I done lately? And you're always having to be very conscious of your own sin. This is where the self-defeatism of Christianity, or religion, I should say, sets in. Because living with this sin consciousness constantly erodes at your faith. It erodes at your confidence. It erodes at your life. To become obsessive over your own failures and shortcomings is to make those things bigger than the sacrifice Jesus made. It's fine to obsess over your own sin, to obsess over your own shortcomings, if you believe that those things are bigger than the sacrifice Jesus made. If that were true, it would, it would be worthwhile, but it's not true. Jesus gave, he overpaid. The bank calculated your debt and said, okay, for, for the lifetime, from, from what you've had in the past, what you have today, and what we expect you to have in the future, you owe $300,000. Jesus said, okay, I tell you what. He went to the bank and said, I'll give you $10 billion. He overpaid. He's more than enough. He is more than we'll ever need. And as talented as we think we are as sinners, as gifted as we are as people who dramatically fall short, as, as, as dramatically as we fall short in general... Jesus, His grace, is so much bigger and so much more sufficient than that. So what Jesus invites us to is not live in this sin consciousness, but to live in this place of grace consciousness. Constantly being reminded that we are forgiven. Constantly being reminded that He paid the price. That His grace is sufficient. That as He is, so are we. To live in His love and His grace, being conscious of that in His finished work, is to live life as a believer. That's a believer's life. We overwhelmingly conquer. We rule, we reign as the righteous under grace. Here's a summary of the entire story of the Bible. God establishes a demand. That demand is be perfect. God's diagnosis through the law of that demand, as far as our report card on how we're keeping up with being perfect, Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount be perfect as my Father is perfect. That's the demand. God's diagnosis of us, you're not. And you can't be. That's the bad news. But God doesn't stop there. His deliverance, He delivers on that demand. His deliverance is Jesus is for you, He is perfect for you. His perfection belongs to you. As He is, 
so are you. This isn't just a heavenly restart. Jesus isn't hitting the reset button and saying, okay, let's try it again. All that, all that stuff, the 400 years of silence, all the, all the, the, the generations before this, that was all a dress rehearsal. This one's for real. Can we, can we get serious about this, guys? This time, this is not a perfect standard that's just being handed to humanity. The person who is giving his authoritative, authoritative interpretation of this perfect demand himself will deliver upon it. And I don't want to overlook that statement. I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Just We know how the story ends. Look at what it cost him to fulfill it. It cost him his life, it cost him everything. That's what it costs to fulfill this demand that is upon us. And we think we can be clever and we just have the right theology, we emphasize the right things in the Bible, we're, we're kind of nice, read our Bible sometimes, pray sometimes, think happy thoughts, be relatively nice to other people, and then magically we can achieve the law and the standard of God. It's a price we can't pay. Jesus sat down, and he sat down as a, a, physical, a, a physical reflection of what he is going to do. And that is going to be finish the law to where it's done. The priest couldn't sit down because it was never finished. Jesus sat down because in him it is. It is finished. He closed the book on the law. Now, what does this mean in my everyday life? Chris, I, I just got to make, I got to pay the bills, buddy. Parenting is tough. School just started. I got to get up early again <laughs> to get this kid off to school. The boss is on my back. This is, things are not going well. The stress that is just everywhere, ubiquitous, the pressure and the stress and the anxiety and the fear that is just everywhere in this world that we live in. I watched someone, um, they were talking about old uh, 80s clips that were just taken from 80s um, people, just hanging out in everyday life. And they said, look at, look at just the people, just the carefree nature and the, the bad hairstyles, obviously, horrible fashion sense, but look at the carefree nature of people. Everyone's just around each other. It's diverse. It's just a, people of all types just kind of being happy. And they said, what if you take a camera out today? You see furrowed brows, more stress. And it's just getting over. As time is going, it's getting heavier and heavier and heavier to be a human. And what's happening is we're, we're feeling the weight and the pressure of an impossible standard to make things right. To bring things to rightness for, for myself personally, for my family, for my friends, for my community. 
This is a, a slice of the impossible burden that Jesus took upon himself for the entire world. At some point, we have to throw in the towel and acknowledge and admit, I can't. Faith requires two confessions. I can't. God has through his son, Jesus. Jesus sat down because all that had to be done was done on the cross. And now I want to, I want to, as we close, I want to, I want to highlight some very important verbiage, some phraseology here. We, by this, by the will of God, to, to, to send his son to fulfill the first, establish the second, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been sanctified. What does that mean? That means as far as our relationship with God, sinless. Not, not he's ignoring or overlooking our sin today. Our sin has been removed from us. As far as the east is from the west, which is a famous Bible scripture that means uh, uh, point yourself west and keep walking, and then when you catch up with your sin, you'll know that it's still with you. It's, it, you're never going to get there. It's been removed. Jesus took our sin upon himself and then died as that sin. He became sin so that we could become righteous. So the statement, have We've been sanctified means in, in God's eyes, you are sinless. And in the same way that you, can, you could never have made yourself sanctified, in the same way you can never, with your own failures, unsanctify yourself because you didn't do it in the first place. This is not a behavior conversation. This is a believing conversation. Believing, having faith, trusting that Jesus took that for us is the end of the transaction. Not you better, you should, you ought. There's no fine print. Jesus is enough. And then it ends with this. By one offering, he has perfected for all time, those who are sanctified. So not only did he sanctify us, he brought us to a place of perfection. Now the, the translation would be here, this idea of completeness. Colossians says that in him, you have been made complete. That's, again, past tense. Have been made. Where does this affect us in everyday life? I want to put it as, as every day as I can. There's nothing ahead of you. There's nothing out there. There's nothing before you. There's no outstanding decisions. There's no outstanding trips or changes or modifications. There's nothing out there that is going to bring you one step closer to completeness. 
the revolution that has to happen in our hearts, in our minds, is that we're working from that place, not for it. We're working from righteousness, not for it. We're we're working from completeness, not for it. We try to solve spiritual problems with by earthly measures, and we think that more income, more money, listen, to quote the famous notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. It, it, it's not the answer. We think, okay, if I can just get my kids grade from a B up to an A, <laughs> the world will sit right, birds will land on my shoulder, it'll be perfect. It'll be moonbeams and, and fun dip. Fun dip. That's good candy. It's sugar. Um, it's cotton candy. That's better. Moonbeams and cotton candy. That's what happens when you spin the fun dip into insulation kind of material. Um, that's a side point. But we think that there's these outstanding things. If this would happen, then I would finally... Part of the reason we prioritize connection and community and being together... And, and going to God together and worshiping God together and praying together and doing life together is because we need each other to continually remind each other what actually matters in this life. We have to be like John the Baptist and continually point each other to Jesus. Because it's so easy to get so caught up. We, we, we become like, like Martha. And Jesus describes her Martha, you are so worried and so bothered about so many things. And I'm telling you today, one thing is necessary. That's it. And everything comes from there. Everything stems from there. So if you want to be a better parent, I commend you. That's a great goal. But you don't become a better parent by putting the focus and the emphasis on you. We become better parents by focusing on our Heavenly Father who then empowers us with something that is beyond ourselves. You, you don't, if you want to become a, a better spouse, that is commendable. I love that. I do too. But you don't become a better spouse by shifting the focus to yourself. The answer is not in you. The answer is outside of you. You focus, you focus your eyes on the, the bridegroom. The, we are the bride of Christ. You focus on the perfect spouse who said, husbands, love your wives like I I love the church. Put your focus on me and what I've done for you, and then that empowers you to love and and, and be married in such a way that you actually want to be. That, That affects every area of life. That is the heartbeat. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first me, my kingdom, my righteousness, and then everything else will be taken care of. In this one phrase, Jesus sat down, it is a reminder that it is finished. That he has paid the debts, he's done the work, he's he's got the A+, and then he credits that to you. You've got an A+, already. Now you're free to live out this life empowered, sanctified, perfected in in Christ as you.